HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, July 26, 2017. This is the 149th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding food and travel photographer, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to consider the freelance life. So most people prefer to have a steady job that provides security and perks, like insurance and vacation and sick days. And that is all wonderful. However, there are many advantages to being a freelancer. Freelancing provides flexibility and the opportunity to work on projects that inspire you and on your own terms. Sure, there are pros and cons to everything, and being a freelancer means you need to be a bit of a hustler and take and risk taker, but the rewards can be great. So if you believe in yourself and independence, give freelancing a try. It's a lifestyle worth pursuing. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest in the studio with me. It is Evan Sung. 
He is a prominent food, lifestyle, and travel photographer based in Brooklyn, whose work has taken him around the world. In addition to his long freelance tenure with the New York Times, Evan has traveled and photographed for clients like Vogue, The Wall Street Journal, GQ, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and Delta Sky. His work has also appeared in several recently published books with Michelin-starred chefs, including To the Bone with Chef Paul Liebrandt and North with Icelandic chef Gunnar Gislason. Welcome, Evan. Thanks so much for having me, Sherry. I'm really happy to have you. My pleasure. Um, your career and everything you've done in it is so impressive, and we've known each other a while in the in the in the industry and hopping around to restaurants. Definitely. So um, I want it, but I want to find out how you how you became this amazing photographer, <laughs> food and travel. Uh, well, definitely putting in a lot of time and uh, just being really you know persistent and and present for. You know, I think uh, at early on, you are just kind of working. As I was a freelancer, so I was just working, and uh, you sort of just take jobs as they come. And I don't know if I didn't have a, a grand strategy, but I did enjoy it, and I just kind of kept at it. And there was always this feeling that, like, after a few years, three, four years, people would see you, and they would say, oh, right, I remember you, you were here two years ago, or I... I saw you doing this other job. Um, and I think it was that sense of, oh, right, you're still here and in it. And then people started to kind of like say, okay, right. So you're, you're a, a fixture right. in this universe, right? Because there are other people who I think maybe pass through that this world and then maybe don't stick around um, because it's challenging and because there's only so many opportunities. And um, so, yeah, I think part of it was just being you know, showing up, right? Like just being present and being, being there and, and people sort of seeing that my work was continuing to spread and, and, yeah. you know, be around. So. Yeah, I can relate to that. Cause I think it's the same with me doing PR, just sticking around and doing mm -hmm. it and being out there. Mm -hmm. People now know that's what I do right. Right. <laughs> and I'm consistent with it. Right. So, um, did you, did you always want to be a photographer? So no, I, um, I actually never touched a camera until after or right at the end of college. Um, strangely, my grandfather was a very active amateur photographer. He really loved it. And I remember we would go visit my cousins in LA and he would take pictures of us with all these funny filters. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was just something that I was aware of, but um, but I wasn't so close to him. He was, uh, I didn't, he was Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese and uh, spoke Taiwanese and Japanese and I don't. So, um, but you know, we, we, I don't either. That, makes me better. <laughs> that does make me feel better. Um, but anyway, so there was that sort of small tangential connection, but honestly, I never, it never occurred to me to do anything like that. Um, I was in college, I started studying psychology and really clicked with that. I really enjoyed, uh, all that material and, and, uh, yeah, psychoanalysis and all of those things. I, I just thought it was fascinating. Um, it was a lot about storytelling. You know, it was a lot about uh, the interpretation of dreams and, and kind of shaping mm -hmm. that into a narrative. So I was all about that and literature um, and like art history. But I was never, I never considered, you know, doing anything creative in that regard. And then I was in a book, I got a job at a bookshop, Shakespeare and Company, uh, yeah, my yeah. last year, and uh, met a guy who became a good friend uh, named Shelton Wallsmith, who's a very talented 
uh, multidisciplinary artist. And um, he and his girlfriend sort of became, they invited me over to their place a lot, and, and I loved his work. And uh, he had an old camera, an old uh, Yashica mat, which is sort of like a, a, a slight lower-end Raleigh flex, but, you know, a, a twin-lens reflex camera that you hold at your waist and you look down, and uh, the whole world is sort of flipped in reverse on that ground glass. And something about that was so kind of mystical and, and cinematic. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I had never seen it before and asked him how it worked. And then we started, uh, the three of us would go out and take pictures and, and he really encouraged uh, my eye and, and just the sense of shoot everything, you know, shoot, shoot whatever you want and just allow that to be a, a creative process. And he had a small dark room, so we, we would print um, at his apartment. And um, so that was really it. That we, it became something that I really enjoyed because of my relationship with them. And uh, so I put that on the back burner. It was just a hobby that I did, but I mm-hmm. still was, I was actually determined to go to a PhD program in comparative literature. And I got in and I went to uh, UC Irvine for about six months. But I kind of quickly realized that it wasn't for me exactly, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was a great program and a great school. And I really had to, I was sort of at a crossroads in life at that point. This was like 99, 2000. Um, <clears throat> so I had to really think about it and, and reevaluate what I would do. And I decided to give photography a shot. But I don't think I even really knew what that meant, except that I was going to go back to New York from California and just try and find a job in photography. And I did kind of quickly. I found a, a studio assistant job, uh, which kind of quickly morphed into a sort of studio manager job. And I learned a lot. It was at a stock agency call, uh, called Comstock. And, um, you know, so they would do sort of conceptual photos of doctors, you know, like holding uh, notepads and, and uh, you know, just a lot of stock photography. But I learned a lot about production and um, lighting and all of these things. So that was sort of my graduate program in photography. Right. Well, and then how did you, I mean, so how did you get into food? Right. So then I worked there for a while and then um, I ended up going out to Paris. Uh, I had sort of done what I needed to do at that stock agency job and wanted to move on. And I had always wanted to go back to Paris. I'd studied there a bit and made friends there. And so it everyone felt, always wants to go back yeah, to exactly, Paris. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so it was, seemed like a good time. And I went back and uh, uh, the short version is that I met um, a guy who happened to be uh, who had happened to just lose his assistant. And so he was looking for an assistant. It was harder than I expected to actually find people who'd hire uh, a photographer or an assistant from New York, mostly due to visa issues and stuff in, like in that. In Paris, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I think naively I thought it'd be easier, but it, it took a while. But I met this guy, Giacomo Bretzel, who was a really fun, talented guy who shot everything, like food, beauty, uh, lifestyle, cars, um, portraits, really just everything, you know? So, and we traveled a lot, <clears throat> um, and just got, I got to see a lot of, uh, the world and, um, just a, a, a different side of, of things through the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to, I mean, he still does. He loves working with older cameras and film and, um, this was still like digital was just kind of taking hold, but it wasn't established yet. Um, 
so he, he had a real flair for all of that. But food was a big part of what he did. And so we ate well and we drank well. And I learned a, a great deal from him. And then when I left Paris after about a year and a half, I came back to New York and started to put a portfolio together of portraits. I was really always interested in portraits, um, which is kind of a tie to the psychology aspect, you know. Um, right. And one of the first things that, as I pitched my portfolio around, one of the first things I got hired to do was shoot a restaurant review. And I like to think that it was the original Momofuku uh, uh, noodle, noodle bar. bar. Mm-hmm. But it probably wasn't the very first thing I did, but it was probably like the first five things I did. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was a, such a... such a Huge. Yeah, <laughs> like a seismic shift in, in <laughs> what food media was and what food was. And I was just all learning all of this stuff. But I sh- was sent to shoot a review and I did it and they liked the results. And I realized I knew how to do it from working with Giacomo and uh, it became a regular thing. You know, weekly they would send me out to shoot who, reviews. Who, who sent you? Uh, this was the New York Sun. Okay. I remember which is, the sign. Which is no yeah. longer, but, um, you know, they had a great arts and culture Yeah, section. they did, they did. Um, and it was definitely a training ground for people who went on to uh, the Times and the Journal and all of that. So, but yeah, it was, a, it was a great gig. They, and I got to shoot restaurants weekly and uh, just learned a lot about the restaurant scene. And I think pretty quickly, probably like within <clears throat> six to eight months, I, I was sending out, I would make these little postcards and promote, you know, my work and myself and pretty quickly I th- I got a call from I got a call on my phone and I looked down at the phone and it says one 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 yeah I know, I've seen that one yes, before I know you have <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course I had no idea what that was mm-hmm. I was at work at my day job uh, at another studio and I was like I don't know if I should take this call I don't know what it is but something was like I just compelled me to take it and uh, it was the New York Times uh at the time, the photo editor of the dining section was uh, Phaedra Brown, and she had gotten my card, one of my cards, and, and asked, if, asked if I was free to shoot a restaurant review. And I'm pretty sure it was Chinatown Brasserie. Yeah. Yeah. Was that? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I did that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was very happy to be asked and, and did that. And, and then it was kind of off and running from there. That was the Frank Bruni era. Mm-hmm. And I did, I don't know something in the order of 75 to 80 percent of those like reviews i think they were there it rotated but I, I definitely was doing a lot of those restaurant reviews it's amazing and what when when you go in are you given you're given an assignment of, of which dishes to shoot like what's the process then like of yeah. shooting a restaurant well i mean at the time at the times it, it was so different so this would be like 2000 five, I suppose, 2005, 2006. And back then it was still just one photo that ran in the paper and online. So, you know, and usually it was a photo of the interior in service. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, warm tone, blurry uh, shots of the dining room. Um, But then after a couple of years, Bruni started doing the interviews with Pete Wells. They they did little slideshows. And so then I started to get assignments where it was like, go in, shoot, you know, these dishes, shoot, chef at work shoot you know any number of things so and it continued to grow you know it was just a a big thing but that's what i mean it was like Mm -hmm. food media was changing so much and and people wanted uh, all these visuals and and to kind of create stories that that had uh just a broader uh rendition of what was going on in these restaurants so yeah i'm thinking 
I don't know if there's a, a weird a weird pressure or something that happens when you're going in to shoot for a restaurant review and the chef doesn't know they're no they know a review's coming out, but you don't know, they don't know what the review's gonna right, be. Is right. there is that like an awkward or difficult thing to deal with um, at times? I mean or, people would ask if if I knew and yeah, I, said, like, I, I don't certainly know. don't. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean I think that it's happened. You know, it's happened where you photograph a review that ends up being a not great review, and obviously it has nothing to do with, <laughs> right. with any photographer that goes in to any restaurant for a review purpose. But you know, there is always a feeling of like, oh, that's it's too bad I had to photograph that one or mm-hmm. something like that. But um, you know, of course, the the main goal is to go in and just make make it look as good as possible. That's to make the nicest photos possible. So. And I will say, you certainly do that. Thank you. <laughs> Photos are beautiful. And on that note, we are going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk more with Evan. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Evan Song. He is a fantastic food, lifestyle, and travel photographer. And uh, so we're just talking about shooting for the New York Times, which is amazing, amazing, Um, as a regular, a regular freelancer. But another thing you do is you do all these beautiful cookbooks and work with so many chefs. So how did you get into that? Like, what was the first book you worked on? Uh, So the very first book I worked on was, um, so there was a a woman that I met um, named Lauren Dean, who's a producer, who's still a very active and, and amazing producer and she was producing a show called um cook yourself thin and it was three women and uh it was a, a lifetime television show lifetime series and and it was they were working on a cookbook you know to sort of pair with that and so i was asked to photograph that book and it was my first experience i was on this tv set and they had set aside an area to shoot the dishes, and there was an amazing prop stylist who had this whole array of linens and plates and forks and knives, and um, a food stylist who was styling for TV. And so that was really my first experience shooting a cookbook. Um, and it was a great first experience because 
all of that infrastructure was already there, mm -hmm. the stylists and, uh, um, you know, a sense of what the book is supposed to be, et cetera. So that was my very first. Um, <clears throat> and so I owe Lauren just a huge debt for, for offering me that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, beyond that, like in the last, <clears throat> I would say, five, six, seven years, uh, the cookbook has just become a much bigger part of what I do. And um, I was doing a few things, but the, the, the most important cookbook project that really sort of set things rolling was my relationship with Paul Liebrandt. Um, and we had met when Corton opened, and I was shooting for The Times and for Manhattan Magazine, you know, the usual mm -hmm. round of sort of opening press. And uh, we started to work together. The story is that I had seen the Alinea cookbook come out. Um, at that time, I'd been shooting already for a while, but when that cookbook came out, I was sort of blown away by the visuals. And now since then, of course, like I've seen, you know, Michelle Bra's cookbooks and, and all of these things. But for me, that was at that time in my education and career, that was a revelation. And I started to think about how could I try and do work like this and who plates food that would be so visually, you know, complicated and, and interesting. And so I, though I didn't know Paul that well, I reached out and said, you know, I would love to collaborate. And so we, we started to just work kind of very informally um, over whenever we had time, whenever he had time, whenever I had time. And then he eventually sold a cookbook, which he co-wrote with Andrew Friedman. And uh, some of the work that we had already done ended up in that book. And then we just started to shoot in earnest for the actual book. And that was with Clarkson Potter. And um, I think that was, that was one that obviously I'm super proud of. And, and is Paul and Andrew are both very important people in my life and, and good friends. Um, and so that was really the beginning of developing a relationship with Clarkson, Clarkson Potter at Random House and just having, you know, a book with a chef of Paul's mm -hmm. caliber. Um, so that was the beginning of it. And then, you know, from there, worked with Mark Forgione and uh, Michael White, who also co-wrote his book with Andrew. Um, and, you know, like anything else, it, it all just starts to like build upon itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember going to your one of your launch parties with Paul mm -hmm. and Andrew yeah. and seeing you guys there. And the book is gorgeous. Thank and you. I didn't. I don't. I don't know at the time if I realized it was such a new. Like cookbooks were so new, f or or at that caliber mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like I I wasn't. Yeah. I just didn't come to this world from a food background or a photography background. It all came after college and after this graduate right, school program. Right. So, so yeah, there's a well. lot of, yeah, there's a lot to get up to speed on, but uh, fortunately, yeah, it's been great yeah. obviously to work with. What's the difference working with, or is there a difference working with all these chefs and also different publishing houses? I've always been curious, like, do they have different, I don't know, rules yeah. or? Yeah. Well, I think yeah, every, every publisher has their own way of doing things mm -hmm. and, uh, there are certain house styles and, and, you know, obviously different art directors who have different um, desires and, and interests. Uh, working with chefs, they are also all very different. Um, but I, I really enjoy that process. I mean, for me, working on cookbooks, the, the most fun part is spending some considerable amount of time with a chef and really getting to know their personality and getting to know how they express that through their food and how they operate their kitchen, how they treat their, their cooks, all of this stuff, and, and, and learning the stories behind 
how they got to where they are. So, um, <clears throat> so that part is, is always different and interesting to me because it's, it's just a different story each time. The publishers, yeah, they have um, different ways of working and, and it's just a matter of kind of being familiar with what they like or what they don't like. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's all... So far, I've been lucky to, to work with great publishers and, and, and the, mm -hmm. the output, the end result is always really satisfying. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And what about travel? Because are you doing more travel photography or I know you worked in the North book Mm -hmm. uh, in Iceland, I was looking on your site at your Iceland pictures because I went to Iceland in March this year. Great. It was so beautiful and fantastic. And I, I, I mean, but I, I was shooting on my iPhone the whole time yeah. and the Northern lights were very hard to capture on oh, an yeah. iPhone. Let me tell you, I got a, I got a shot, but I was thinking, um, your photos are beautiful, but did you tie that trip I mean, were you there to, sh to tell me, were you there yeah. on vacation or nope, were you there? Nope. I was yeah, hired. Was a, okay. I was, it was, it was definitely, um, I was hired to work on this book with, uh, Gunnar, Chef Gunnar Gislason, who's cooking now at Agern here in, in the city, mm -hmm. um, but also has the, Dill. the restaurant. I Dill. went to Dill's. Yeah. Fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, the book was structured, uh, around three visits. So I was there traveling with Gunnar and, the co-writer Jody, Jody, Eddie. Jody Eddie, shout and, out to um, Jody. Yep, yeah. and so we would travel. One trip, we would travel like up to the northwest, and then you know shoot all the purveyors and producers that Gunnar worked with, and who provided ingredients for all of his recipes. And then we'd come back, and then go sort of to the to the far east uh, of Iceland, and kind of trek through the middle. And um, so each trip was uh, just an exploration of basically the whole island which is amazing to, to be able to do that in the Very company amazing. of, mm -hmm. of uh, a chef like Gunnar. And then went back one more time for about a week to do the actual shooting, which we did in Dill um, uh, over the course of, I would say, seven or eight days, something like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, so that was the project. Um, I think the first like travel thing that I did was with Andrew and Michael White we went to Italy for um, Classico e Moderno, and that was also amazing to just be mm. uh, traveling through Bologna and, and down um, through uh, the Amalfi Coast with Michael White, who just, when he's there, is just like totally Italian. It's amazing. He just transforms into... Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so that was so incredible for me to be able to tell the story of Michael's food and his background through, you know, all of these experiences and seeing the landscape and the people that he worked with and the produce and the ingredients and all of this stuff. So that was, you know, one of the first big experiences for me that integrated travel and, and food. And I've always liked travel. My parents always traveled with us when, when we were young. Then they never shied away from traveling with me and my brother and sister. So I've always enjoyed that. But that was definitely a place, an instance where I felt like, wow, I can do explore food through all of this travel with my camera and, uh, and do that. So since then, there's been North about Iceland and uh, Senegal with uh, Chef Pierre Thiam, where we got to go to Senegal for also three visits and uh, really got to see Senegal north to south and east to west. And uh, I've been to Spain with uh, Katie Button and Felix Miana from Curate in Asheville, North Carolina. 
So yeah, it's been amazing to be able to, to do yeah. these things. You know? I'm thinking everyone listening to my show and, and me, we, we all want to be you. <laughs> like, I'm like, I, I love food and travel, but this is like, but having, yeah, no, incredible experiences and, and opportunities. So, yeah. The, the yeah. camera is an amazing, it's an amazing instrument because it really does open up doors and, and you get to just experience so much uh, more. Like it's actually hard for me to travel when I'm not working because I feel a little bit like aimless. Like I'm not good at just traveling to relax. So wow. it's, it helps me to have an assignment or something to structure my travel. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that too. It all ties together and yeah. yeah. So let me, before we take a break, let me ask you my question I have from my last guest. So on episode 148, I had on Joe Montagnol. He's the CEO and co-founder of Seven Rooms, which is a reservation seating and guest management platform. So he had a very thoughtful question. He wants to know, out of all the places you've been, where do you find food and culture is most intertwined? And, and he gave an example, like most, most reflective of each other. And then where do you think it's most disconnected, such as you wouldn't think this culture has this type of food? That's, um, <clears throat> that's a super tricky question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I guess when I approach travel and I go to a country, I don't, I try not to have any preconceived notions about what that food is supposed to be, I suppose. And I don't know, food is, is culture in so many ways. So that's how I, I think that's how a lot of us travel is to go and eat and sort of say, oh, okay, this country is about, you know, this preparation and then the specifics of each region of, of any, of any given country, like is reflected in those dishes. So for I don't know how to disentangle those two, food and culture. They just seem so uh, synonymous, basically. Um, <clears throat> so I guess what's interesting, I think like on the sort of more, well, like in Iceland, they love hot dogs. They love these crazy hot dogs with like toasted shallots. And it's just like such a big thing there. And I'm not, I don't remember the backstory as to why hot dogs are such a big thing, but um, but they really are. Like, yeah. I um, went to that one, the yeah, one place. The one in Reykjavik. I can't pronounce yeah. the name. <laughs> <laughs> Nor can I. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's uh, and I always love like uh, going to to whatever uh, convenience stores and sort of seeing like strange potato chip flavors that are like super local to various regions and countries. Um, that's the kind of I don't know that 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 kind of thing is very funny. Like where, where the culture is being sort of. Uh, filter through this lens of fast food or kind of global, right, product, mm -hmm. whether it be hot dogs or potato chips or um, soda, soda pop or, or Kit whatever. Kats. Kit Kats. Kit Kats. Yeah, Japan. exactly. Right, totally. <laughs> yeah. So um, that kind of stuff is a fascinating uh, explosion of, of culture and food and, and the way they interact and, and relate. But... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I've ever gone to a place and thought like, "Oh, this doesn't belong here," because I would just think, "Well, I didn't know that they had this or that they had that." But sure, I guess they do. All right. You know? I think I think that's a great answer. Well said. <laughs> and on that note, let's take another little break here, and then we're going to come back and we're going to play my speed round game and talk industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network.
Hi, I'm Linda Liu, host of Feast Meets West on Heritage Radio Network. Feast Meets West traces the stories of your favorite Asian foods, from their origins to what they mean in today's food culture. Tune in on Wednesdays, 8 p.m. to hear my co-host Iris and I interview chefs, restaurateurs, and other food experts about Asian cuisine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Evan Sung. Are you ready for my speed round game? I hope so. (laughs) I think you're going to be great. I'm going to name a couple things and you just pick your preference. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Uh, Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Um, Wine at this point. Champagne at this point. Ooh, I'm getting specific. (laughs) Love it. Tasting menu or a la carte? Um, A la carte? I mean, both, I guess. I mean, I I can't. A la carte. Why why not? (laughs) How about small plates or large plates? Um, small plates is good. Communal table or chef's counter? Uh, I'm not such a big fan of communal tables, so let's say chef's counter. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Um, all-inclusive. Good for the all-inclusive. How about shooting in studio or on location? Mm, on location, generally. Okay, well, we're talking about that. Not so bad to be in Spain, (laughs) Italy, and Iceland. Uh, How about uh, shooting food, landscapes, or portraits, people? Um, I mean, I guess portraits. You're still bad, yeah, still your favorite. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, yeah, because because that's, it's the people that make the food, and landscapes are beautiful, uh, but it is kind of like a picture postcard situation and a person's face is so specific and has so much to tell about the person's character. And Yeah, no, that's, that's a great reason. I love shooting landscapes. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, my, my, my Instagram's all food, but it's like every once in a while I put in a, a nice sunset picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're asking me either or, yeah. then that's yeah. a okay. portrait, but okay. I, I like it all. Yeah. I, well, you're good at it all. <laughs> How about cheese plate or dessert? Um, dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh, I thought you were asking me about cocktails for a second. Oh, uh, that, uh, you're not the first to <laughs> say that. Yeah. Um, Brooklyn. I mean, I'm born in Manhattan. I'm, I was. I grew up in Manhattan, which but, is very uh, cool. Yeah, I think it was, it was a nice. <laughs> it was definitely a nice place to grow up. Um, but yeah, these days I, I feel very comfortable where I'm at in Brooklyn. So. I'll say Brooklyn. Okay, great. See, you were great at the game. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay, so for industry news, this week I picked out an article in Bloomberg Pursuits, How Rent Spikes Are Creating Fine Dining Deserts in New York City. This was by Kate Crater and James Tarmy. So this is not an entirely new subject or we've talked about on the show, but this article is talking about what's happening in the, the Union Square area which changed tremendously from uh, 20 plus years ago when you had restaurants like Republic, Blue Water Grill, and Union Square Cafe that, that really, sure. really 
changed the neighborhood and it was it was um uh, a very different different not not um populated like Manhattan like what it is today it really put right. it on the map and and these places are closing um well Union Square Cafe has moved but um it it has to do with uh, rent increases but Re- Republic uh, was there for 20 years is closing mm-hmm. and um article is saying you know creating these deserts like what's going to happen now with Union Square is it going to go back to being not as much of a hub or or yeah. you know place in New York City yeah. so I mean I think you see it in a lot of places. Uh, you know, I, like I walk down Smith Street and there are a lot of shuttered mm-hmm, stores yeah. for rent there. And, uh, you know, I think it is this idea that it's, it goes beyond the restaurant industry. I mean, you just, I, you always see these massive, massive storefronts, like split level, three level storefronts. And you just wonder, like, who can afford, what company can afford to really operate these spaces that must have just astronomical rents. So the restaurant industry just makes it even harder because the margins are so tight and um, labor costs, you know, going up, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what will replace those spaces and spaces just seem to get larger and larger. And yeah, I don't know either. I mean, Blue Water Grill, it said the rent is going up to 2 million a year mm-hmm. and just it, it's an extremely successful restaurant but mm-hmm. still with that they're like how are we that's like an impossible rent to make mm-hmm. yearly um so i don't know there's a new dylan's like candy shop down there and there's a starbucks mm-hmm. and i don't i mean we'll see but the rent yeah how to make ends meet and uh i don't you know it, i mean it was it was interesting i was saying this guy jonathan moore who's um, the owner of Republic, he's actually, his lease is f- for another three and a half years, but he's he's ending it sooner because he's going to split the difference of the rent increase of what the landlord gets from the new tenant, tenant mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. him. So he's going to profit from it a little bit. So he's like getting out early, but um, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what's going to go in. We'll yeah. see. Well, it definitely will. I mean, obviously it creates new neighborhoods elsewhere. That That's one side yeah, effect. Yeah, that's a uh, optimistic approach. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I, it does create these areas where all you have are banks and uh, what else do you have? Banks Dwayne and Reeds. Dwayne Reeds. I mean, I like my Dwayne Reed, but uh, yeah, but yeah banks I mean, are, yeah. you just end up or you know, more stores, I guess. Like maybe you get like an H and M or something right. to go in. I don't know. Right, but like spaces where you can hang out. You can really linger and spend time, whether yeah. it, whether it be a restaurant, cafe, or a Barnes and Noble, or you mm-hmm. know, I still miss Tower Records on West on mm, on Fourth yeah. Street. You can hang out there for hours and hours and just kind of kill time. So yeah, the, the economics of that are really tough, especially in this city. So I don't know. You you you, you do end up with deserts, and that's not that's not ideal. So yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, yeah. And be optimistic about and it. And there are always really smart operators who do find ways to kind of make a space work, even in a, in a challenging neighborhood. So Yeah, true. Yeah, the other article I had was on Eater New York, and it was entitled, Quiet Restaurants Are for the Rich. In Some Places, Quiet is Becoming a Luxury Amenity. And this was by Deborah First. And this is something also we talked about the, on the show before with being... Um, 
I mean, restaurants are typically so noisy and loud, and it's a problem. And this article really highlighted Alex Stupak's new place, Empion, in Midtown, and how well he worked with Glenn Coben, who's as a designer, and anticipated the noise issues. And well, it was interesting. Alex said he didn't want to put in all the the sound. Uh, the panels at first he wanted to see what it was like but as soon as they opened and he saw how noisy it was it was like they went to like glenn was ready with the plan yeah um and i i've dined there upstairs and i did notice how how the volume was 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 great Mm. it was you could have a conversation and so it worked Mm -hmm. but this article is pointing out how expensive it is to put in these sound acoustic panels and and what you put in the ceiling and and uh, the to do it is very expensive, which is, I think, why a lot of restaurants don't, and mm-hmm. also a lot of restaurants want the want the noise. Right. So, right. Um, I don't know if you have any comment on this. Um, I mean, I, I think sure. Of course, in a restaurant, everything is an expense, and so there are decisions to be made about whether to, to pursue soundproofing, etc. Um, but yeah, I think I think in general the, the theory seems correct a, a, a cheaper more casual place wants that sort of din and that that vibe and that uh, energy um, and it also kind of just helps for turnaround right and, and getting people in and out um, and I think it's just a cultural expectation that if you pay a lot for your meal some significant amount that you would be able to dine in peace and quiet and and um, but I don't know something like something like Empeon, which uh, you know is is great, and that maybe straddles some sort of middle ground. And uh, I think it I think it has a good um, noise level to it. Like it feels energetic when I've been there, and uh, has a great bar scene. And yeah, I think the bar downstairs not, definitely is yeah. noisy, or it has that energy. It was right. when I was upstairs where I noticed like you could really you could have, have a conversation. conversation. Yeah. 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 So it's not a hushed place, but it no, is. No, no. But it has, it controls yeah. the, the sound levels. Yeah, and the article also pointed out Le Cuckoo, which, Le Cuckoo, mm-hmm. I think Rita Jemay told me, that's how it's pronounced. Uh-huh. Um, but they, I mean, they have the cushions on the banquettes, and they have the drapes on the on the windows, and, and all and the carpet, and the white tablecloth, like all those things help with noise. Yeah. Um, and it's a more sophisticated restaurant, but I think all of that uh, cost money and then it goes back to the diner of, mm-hmm. you know, you're paying for it. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I think, I think maybe, maybe New Yorkers or people are getting, uh, getting tired of this. You have to scream in a restaurant, right. you know, and, and more restaurateurs will put in sound, you know, sound, uh, whatever enhancements so that you, it's quieter. Yeah. I mean, I, I usually I'm okay with, uh, noise levels, uh, but yeah, there are definitely some places I've been to recently where it's, I'm like, wow, this is really, yeah, there's you, a lot going you, on right now. Yeah, you walk out and you realize you'd been shouting for yeah, two hours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. Okay, so we're going to take one more break. Come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. 
With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Hopper's. Here's the rundown. The location, 49 Frith Street, Soho, London. The concept, family-style Sri Lankan and Tamil Nadu street food-inspired cooking, plus inventive cocktails offered in a vibrant, relaxed surroundings. Why did I go? Because the fabulous Kate Crater told me to, and other trusted colleagues. But if Kate says to go, you, you go. So I did. So my experience. I arrived around 6.30 at this no-reservation restaurant to find a crowd waiting outside for tables. I approached the host, who was taking names and quoting people several hour-long waits. So I was feeling like I wasn't going to get in. But then I said I was a party of one. And what do you know? I was instantly sat at at the last seat at a little um, counter in the center of the restaurant. So I got in immediately just because I was solo. Uh, it was it was a tight space, so I was lucky to be petite, but I was lucky to be in because this place is obviously very popular. So what did I get? I had hot butter deviled shrimps and an egg hopper, which is an edible bowl made of fermented rice and coconut milk pancake with an egg. You can get a hopper without the egg, but I got it with it. And then I had it with lamb curry, which is their curry. I also had a green papaya crush drink, which was cucumber with green papaya, cucumber, coriander, green chili, and salt lime soda. So my take flavorful, spicy, unique, delicious, fun, unusual, and it was worth being crammed in for. It was really fantastic food. The ambiance, dark, casual, lively spot, and loud, (laughs) as we're talking about noise. Perfect for queuing up to satisfy Indian food cravings at a very good value. Interesting tidbit. So this little Soho restaurant is the latest from the Sathis, a family behind London's Michelin-starred Jim Khanna and Trishna. And personal fun fact, I was staying nearby in Soho at the lovely Dean Street townhouse, which was very convenient, and I enjoyed lots of meals in the Soho neighborhood. Uh, I also had gone to Barafina, Kiln, Palomar, and Dishoom. Many of these you have to line up for, too, or lucky to have a reservation, which I did have at Palomar, but the other ones I waited for. Um, I also know this, this trend at some of those others with these kitchen bars, which seem to be all over London. I feel maybe we'll see that more in Manhattan. So Hopper's cost was $34. That is converted into U.S. and including everything, tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would definitely go back solo because I think it's easier to get in. Website is hopperslondon.com. What do you think of that? Sounds great. (laughs) Go next time I'm in London. All right, cool. Yeah, it it was a great spot and a great tip from Kate. Okay, so it's time for the final question. Next week, I am having on legendary Gail Green the, from The Insatiable Critic and the former 
restaurant critic at New York Magazine. Gail is also the co-founder of City Meals on Wheels, which he co-founded with James Beard. So, Evan, what would you like to ask Gail? Uh, I guess I was thinking uh, she's seen a lot of restaurant changes, changes in the restaurant world, and I think sometimes it's easy to think about you know, the good old days and how things might have been better before and you talk about noise level and comfort and things like that. So I would be curious to hear from her. Are there things that she sees in restaurants these days that she actually like applauds and, and likes? You know, are there new developments that she thinks are really great compared to in the past? Okay, great question. I will ask. Yeah, she's, she's with she was in New York magazine forty mm-hmm. years, so mm-hmm. yeah, long time. Yeah. Yeah, seen a lot seen yep. <laughs> and yep. also seen a lot with photography too you know of, of restaurants i'm thinking true yeah, yeah. changes I can't so. wait for that interview oh well thanks well that's the show thank you so much thank you so much sherry i'm great. just i'm just Im- so impressed with everything you've done i i think I, I i love seeing your photos i just think you do beautiful work thank you very much you're welcome I look forward to seeing you out out in the industry and, 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 and all of your books and, and, and photos in the Times and Plus. So my guest today has been Evan Sung. He is a prominent food, lifestyle, and travel photographer. You can find his work at evansung.com and you can follow him on social media at evansungnyc. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and we are on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks again to Evan and to my show's engineer today, David. I'm Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Heaven, on the top of the hill.